0: aftermath of deception. and Boy, there was a lot of deception. This would include Isaac's secret plan to bless Esau in violation to the revealed will of God. It would include Rebekah's elaborate hoax of disguising Jacob to represent Esau. Remember, her husband is blind by this time, so Isaac can't see who he's blessing. He's got to go on other other evidence. And finally, we have Jacob's ruse in playing the role of Esau through lies and a costume (laughs) to secure Isaac's blessing. So there's room here for many in this family to share the blame of deception and consequently the aftermath of such living of lies. should warn us that, believe it or not, Same type of traps as well. The first thing we learn in today's text, verse 41, it says Esau held a grudge against Jacob. We read this and we think, well, who wouldn't hold a grudge against another who has used lies and trickery and deception to defraud them of what was legally theirs? No one likes to be made the fool, so yeah, he's holding a grudge. If this were an insignificant matter, we might dismiss it with the council. Well, Esau, get over it. So Jacob played a trick on you. That happens with everyone. Man up. Get on with your life. I can remember as a brother, I played a lot of tricks on my sister and my brother. And they on me. But these were trivial things that ended in all of us laughing and having fun. We were tricksters to do things like that. But do we notice in this text that Esau isn't laughing? He's not laughing. Instead, he was plotting the murder of Jacob for stealing the blessing of his father Isaac right out from under his nose, verse 41. Now again, let us keep in mind that this blessing meant the lion's share of Isaac's estate to name just one aspect. One aspect. Excuse me. Well, what do we know about Isaac's estate? If you go back to chapter 26, look at verse 13 and 14. It's speaking of Isaac, and it says, The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. Genesis 26. You have to be pretty rich for a nation of people to envy you as a sojourner in their land. Think about that. A nation is envious of this man named Isaac. Historically, there are thousands of accounts where siblings have done in a brother or a sister just to get their hands on the inheritance money. Seems a bad part of human history. Another aspect of the blessing was the position the family as family had the ruler of the clan chapter 27 verse 29 be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you Now, historically this is many centuries before Israel's first king who was Saul King Saul and that was preceded by the period of the ruling judges which We learned a little bit about today in the adult class with Doug. Even further back as we move back into our text, we come to the patriarchs or the fathers of the clans. And they were the ones that ruled. With multiple wives and many children, these clans, or if you prefer the word tribes, these tribes grew numerically into thousands. For example... After Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, they had to face the enemy of the Midianites who blocked their path to the promised land. And we read, the Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people, which means after that, you do this one last thing, then it will be time for you to die. So Moses said to the people, arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites and to carry out the Lord's vengeance on them sent into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So, I'm still reading, 12,000 men armed for battle, a thousand from each tribe, were supplied from the clans of Israel. Moses sent them into battle, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas son of Eliezer the priest, who took with him the articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. Numbers 31, the first six. But 1,000 from each clan, each tribe, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the total number of each clan. Let me give it to you, and I'm reading all these are from Numbers 26. Verse 7, the clans of Reuben, 43,730. That's one guy produced that. The clans of Gad, 40,500. The clans of Judah, 76,500. The clans of Issachar, 64,300. The clans of Zebulun, 60,500. The clans of Manasseh, 52,7. The clans of Ephraim, 32,500. The clans of Benjamin, 45,600. And on down through, all of the 12 tribes or clans. When Saul mustered his army to fight against the Ammonites, we are told the men of Israel, that would be the northern tribes, the men of Israel numbered three hundred and the men of Judah, 30,000. So you have a total there of 330,000 going against... Now, that's just they just count the men, you understand. They're not counting the women and the children. So 330,000 uh, mustered troops from these clans or tribes. The clan over which Esau would be ruler was a far cry from the descendants of Isaac, but the principal remains that headship, headship, be it over hundreds or thousands, was snatched away from Esau through Jacob's treachery, and Esau was not about to take that lying down. So that was the second thing with regard to the blessing. There's a third aspect of the blessing, which to Esau was why he despised the birthright and blessing, in the first place. And that was the position of spiritual leader of the clan or of the tribe. Esau had no spiritual leanings towards Jehovah. The Bible labels him as godless. His marriage to Hittite women confirms that. Chapter 6, verse 34. So two out of the three aspects of the blessing Esau wanted very badly. He wanted the lion's share of the estate. That would have brought him great wealth. And he wanted the position of being the clan ruler so that he could boss everybody about. It's the age-old lust of men for money and power. It's the same thing. Money and power. That's what Esau saw in the blessing of Isaac if he could get it. But the spiritual duties of prayer, of living in accordance with the word of God, judging the people with righteousness and equity, living an exemplary life of morality and fairness, and of loving worship of God. (laughs) Esau wanted nothing to do with any of that. Because he was godless, he forfeited God's blessing as the clan ruled. So here is the nature for his grudge. He, he wants the two things that the blessing provides, but he doesn't want the third thing. And God passes him over. Well, what did Esau intend to do? Well, his intention, point two, was to bide his time, yes, and then when Isaac was gone, when dad's gone, I will kill my brother Jacob, verse 41. Rebekah, likely privy to Esau's intent through a servant who overheard Esau's threat, verse 42, quickly summoned Jacob to warn him that he was in danger so long as he remained at the homestead. Her solution was to have Jacob flee to her own homestead back to her brother Laban's house where Eliezer, Abraham's servant, had found her as a bride for Isaac she then made this appeal to Isaac verse 46 when Rebekah said to isaac i am disgusted with living because of these hittite women if jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land from hittite women like these my life will not be worth living genesis 27 verse 46 from this concern isaac takes control and he sends he sends jacob Chapter 28, verse 1 and following. So Isaac called for Jacob, and he blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padamaram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Badaim Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Genesis 28, the first verse. I think it is wonderful to witness here that harmony of purpose has been restored between Rebekah and Isaac. There has been a lot of tension between these two. Isaac favoring Esau, Rebekah favoring Jacob, both of them at odds with one another. Which son should be appointed as the family head? Now that Isaac was old and incapacitated, and soon to die, they get their act together. Isaac was guilty of trying to bypass Jacob as the heir that God had approved. And Rebecca was guilty of using deception and trickery against her husband to see to it that Jacob received his father's blessing instead of trusting God's promise that yes, indeed, the promise of God would come true, the older son would be subservient to the younger, in this case Jacob, and no, God did not need her trickery to accomplish his will. There's a failure of faith on both their, on both their parts, but now, praise God, they're, they're kind of pulling together. They're both agreed that Jacob needs to leave their homestead homestead for two reasons— Number one, the intent of Esau to kill Jacob was taken seriously. They recognized that Esau's anger was real. was not about to subside. And what is more, Esau had the wherewithal to kill his brother with one swift arrow from his bow. Rebekah does anticipate a time when Esau will kind of calm down and Come to his senses. Look at verse 45. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back. That time is not here. That time is not now. It's not while Esau is still steaming over the trickery used by Jacob to steal his father's blessing for himself. Now, that's the first reason why he should leave. You need to leave, your brother's very angry, he's got murder in his eyes, and it's not safe for you here. Second reason. The second reason Isaac and Rebekah want Jacob to return to his uncle's homestead is to find a suitable wife. They do not want him marrying pagan women as Esau had done. They knew, and we should too, that a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever foments all sorts of disagreements and heartaches that would otherwise be avoided. Believers think about life in the context of how their decisions will advance and favor the cause of God. Unbelievers do not take religion seriously because they think they are masters of their own destinies and do not need God telling them what to do. So the point is, if you marry within the faith, you avoid these tensions and these heartaches and conflicts. Paul agrees. Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. The Revised Standard Version reads it this way. Do not be mismated with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and... And Belial, word for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. All of this from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 5. And verse 5 of our text states, Then Isaac sent... Jacob on his way, and he went to Padam Aran to Laban, son of Bethuel, the, Ar- the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Genesis 28, verse 5. So, things are still tense. Things have not calmed down in this house. Esau's breathing out threats. Secretly, but it got out. The word got out. Rebecca heard it, informs Isaac. Isaac says, You know,
1: you know, Jacob,
0: you gotta leave. And you gotta leave right away. Thirdly, Esau's anger is evident. <laughs> I mean, he look what he does in spite. He retaliates against his parents. Now this guy's forty years old or more. Age of marriage. Remember? So he's in his 40s. When Esau learned that Isaac and Rebekah had sent Jacob away to Padamaran with their blessing for the purpose of taking a wife from among the relatives who lived there, he picked up something of interest in the report that he heard. The something of interest was the news that Isaac, chapter 28, verse 6, commanded Jacob to. Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And a light bulb went on in his mind. Ah, my father, my mother, are dead sent against their son, in this case Jacob, marrying any woman of Canaanite heritage. Now, if he had not figured this out uh, with regard to his marriage to the two Hittite women, that were making life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah, he certainly figured it out now. So what did he do with this information? Look at verse 8. Esau then realized, well, light bulb, he then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition the wives that he already had. Chapter 28, verse 8 and 9. This was a spite move on Esau's part. My father is displeased with Canaanite women becoming part of the family, so I will go out and marry a woman equally repulsive to Isaac. I will marry the sister of Ishmael's daughter, Ishmael being the son of Abraham, whom God rejected as heir to Abraham's fortune and birthright because Isaac was the promised heir, not Ishmael. Now, do you note the irony in all of this? Esau lost the blessing and birthright to Jacob, the secondborn, and Ishmael lost the blessing and birthright to Isaac, the secondborn. So Esau goes to Ishmael the black shape in Abraham's family, and marries one of Ishmael's women, a woman just as rejected, just as much an outcast as any Canaanite woman, but with this added gotcha twist of being an actual outcast in Abraham's and thus in Isaac's own family. Dad, take that. It was Esau's way of kicking sand in dad and mom's face by doing something he knew would add to their pain and anguish. The report had come back to him that his mother Rebekah could not abide his present wives, did not want Jacob to marry the same kind of women. So what better way, if we can say it that way, for him to hurt his parents than to do the very opposite of Jacob's actions. Verse seven, he learned that Jacob had obeyed. Jacob did leave for his mother's homestead to find a wife there. So he, Esau, would disobey by marrying one of the women in Ishmael's rejected. What a messed up, hurtful, infighting family whose heartaches they brought upon themselves through intentional sin, the consequences were worse than the hurt they inflicted on one another. Rebecca told Jacob, "When your brother is no longer angry with you, when he forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. That is from my brother's house." She had it all thought out. What she had not thought out was the truth that 20 years would pass before Jacob would ever return home according to chapter 31 verse 38 and in those 20 years Rebekah herself would die and never see Jacob again. That's a hard pill to swallow for the lies, for the deception, for the schism in the family that she and Isaacs poor parenting had caused. Is it worth it? It's not worth it. This was their lives. Now what lessons are pertinent to living in family turmoil? All of us experience some form of family turmoil. Maybe not to this degree between husband and wife. Working one child against the other and all that, but certainly, we all know that as believers marrying believers and then having uh, extended families of unbelievers and so on, there is turmoil. What do we learn? Well, number one, and I point this out, that with God, with God, spiritual responsibilities take precedence over material goods, and rule in family. Headship. Let me say it again. Spiritual responsibilities take precedence over material goods and rule in family headship. If I would ask the fathers here this morning, what is your primary mandate from God in being the father of your family? I'm pretty sure that most of you would list two main tasks for which you feel an overwhelming obligation to fulfill as father in their house. Number one, to be a good provider for the family by working hard to earn money so you could purchase housing and food and clothing and health care for your wife and your children. Most fathers, I think, would list that. And number two, to protect the family from those who would seek to hurt them belittle them, or destroy them in any way. And in our culture, with the rise of ISIS and other things that are going on, that has become, maybe that's even pushing harder on the first priority of late. And you know what? It is true. It is true that such a mandate from God is given to us as fathers. Paul writes, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. How could you be worse than an unbeliever? Well, it's in this category. Because even unbelievers know or have the sense of duty of providing for their families. And Paul set himself as the example. He goes on, For you yourselves know How you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some of you are idle. Mm-hmm. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people I command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7-12. through 12. So we have a command as well. Work, provide for your family, and so on. But with that said, and with that believed, it makes us no better than Esau, who also sought to obtain money and protective power for himself and for his family. But the spiritual leadership of the home, Esau had no stomach for. How did Solomon instruct his sons? Listen, he says this. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. I'm not just here, boys, to see that you have an estate when I die. I'm trying to teach you something. Your mother's trying to give you faithful instruction on how to live life. You need to listen up. Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 4. That's a father's task. How do we do that? Well, through devotional readings, scripture lessons, prayer time, discussion on relevant present day topics in the news and how to relate to those things. May I say this is the priority? I have it right from the words of Christ. Here it is. Jesus says, Do not worry, saying, Oh, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? See that? That's That's all material things. Here's his reasoning. For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. What is he saying? He's saying this. The spiritual takes precedence over the material. And it takes precedence over protection. That's how we best serve our children and our wives. That's how we best serve our family. By being the spiritual leaders we need to be. What I have found in the American home is that we abdicate to our wives and they become the spiritual leaders. The dad doesn't have the time or the will or the inclination or whatever. Secondly, we need to learn that grudges are born of hatred, and hatred is the underpinning of murder. What's a grudge? The Hebrew here in this text is Saul Tom. S A W T A M. T A M. Means to bear a grudge, to retain, retain animosity against, to cherish. Animosity against. It really is like nursing <laughs> anger. If we were to change just the last letter of the word from M Saw Tom to N Sautan, the word means an opponent, a plotter, an adversary, and it's one of the names. Satan, Satan, of Satan. We're never more like the devil. We're full of hate and bitterness. If we just go with the English word, a grudge, the Webster Dictionary defines a grudge as a persistent feeling of ill will or resentment resulting from a past insult or injury. Oh, that is good. That is Esau, isn't it? Let me read it again. A persistent feeling of ill will or resentment resulting from a past insult or injury. Esau has been wronged by his brother Jacob and he is steaming inside. And the more he thinks about the treachery That Jacob used to deprive him of Isaac's blessing, the more angry he becomes. And the more angry he becomes, the more his hatred toward Jacob begins to take on the scheme of a murder plot. Good meaning people would say to Esau, Hey man, hey man, you gotta let it go. You gotta let it go. But he cannot. His pride has been wounded. His macho masculinity has been humiliated by a smooth-talking, spoiled brother whose chief success in life is scheming. Jesus described it this way. You have heard that it has been said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, You fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 5, verse 21, 22. The writer of Hebrews warns about the consequences Esau never contemplated, nor do we at times. Let me read it for you. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause us trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Hebrews 12, verse 15 and 16. I've been quoting that last verse in this series a number of times, but... Let's not forget verse 15, which says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That's all Saul, Esau. Esau's bitter grudge put him at odds with his brother Jacob. But even worse, it put him at odds with God and God's grace. He was contemplating... Murder. And in his hatred for Jacob, the murder was already, it was already a done deal. It was murder in his heart. John words it this way: anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 1 John 3, verse 13. Now there's a sober. I didn't murder anybody. We hear that from people all the time.
1: Well, I'm not a murderer.
0: When we tar- start talking to them about being sinners in need of God's grace, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Esau became his own enemy. Let's not fall into his trap. Paul says, in your anger, do, do not sin. He's not saying don't ever be angry. He's just saying, in your anger, don't sin. How, how not? Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't let the sun go down nursing your grudge for that day and the next day and the next day and weeks. and. Don't we hear people that, boy, something happened 15 years ago and they're still not speaking to one another. And he goes on to end saying, and do not give the devil a foothold. What is the devil? Jesus said, John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. You don't give the devil a foothold by nursing. Number three, we can learn that a cool-down time for anger leads to more rational conduct and peace. Rebecca was correct. She was correct when she said to Jacob, Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. Chapters 27, verse 43. What is she saying? She is saying, Put some distance between you and Esau. Allow for some time to pass between the two of you. Give Esau some time to cool down and rethink his angry intent. Very good counsel. God's word, in fact, endorses Rebekah's wisdom. The psalmist says, In your anger do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your heart and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Psalm 4, verse 4 and 5. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying when you're angry, you need to sleep on it. Don't go mouthing off just because you're angry. Don't make threats. Don't display your venom. Don't vent your spleen. Go take a nap. Sleep on it. And while you're sleeping, offer right sacrifices when you get up. Trust in the Lord when you get up. The writer of Proverbs says, A patient man has great understanding. So he's saying, take some time to think through. But a quick-tempered man displays folly. You're going to get in trouble if you just pop off. That's Proverbs 14, verse 29. Again, he writes, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It's to his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19, verse 11. By the way, the Proverbs liners that will help you in all aspects of life. Oh, and I love this one. Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs it up. Oh, how are you going to answer somebody when they come and they're all hot under the collar and they're snorting? They're going to tell you a thing or two. You're not going to do that to me. Na, 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 na. Gentle answer. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. Well, what's, the, what's the problem? How have I offended you? Uh, if, if I have, I'll make it right. You're throwing water on the fire. Paul puts it this way get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling. Slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Ephesians 4, verse 31. How'd you like God to treat you the way you want to treat somebody else in your anger? If ever there is a person justified for being angry with another person, it's God justified being angry. Now I might say that this works even for people with murderous intent in their hearts like Esau. Because in the reunion which occurred 20 years later between Esau and Jacob, we read this. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. Not give vent to your anger. Allow for time and distance to lead to cooler heads. Allow the bitter root to die from malnutrition through forgiveness and reconciliation. You don't have to speak your mind. Every time somebody hurts you, you can bite your left. You can swallow. Lesson four, the fact that God can and does override evil actions, does not, does not exonerate people for their sin. Never look at Rebecca. Never look at Jacob's trickery of Isaac and Esau as okay because, well, it all turned out well in the end. That's the way we think. These two plotted together to help God out as though he needed their help to keep his covenant promise to Jacob. We might ask well, what what would have happened to God's plan that Jacob received the blessing and not Esau had Rebekah and Jacob not worked together to save the day? What would have happened? Well, frankly, I don't know how God would have resolved the willfulness of Isaac, his deliberate attempt to rule contrary to God's will. I only know that God does perfectly well without being pushed or prodded or manipulated by sinners who think they know best. God wants you and I to live our lives by faith in him not by our wits, not by being wheeler dealers, not by trying to outsmart or outplay what God has set in motion. When this happens, God can and he does often override our sinful actions, as here, but in doing so, he allows the consequences of our conduct to come crashing down upon us, the consequences. In the middle of Rebecca's planned deception of Isaac, Jacob expressed some doubts. Look at chapter 27, verse 12. What if? It's always good to ask some what if questions. When, when somebody's, we're going to do this, we're going to go here, we're going to do that. Yeah, okay, what if? Okay, so he asks, what if my father touches me? He's referring to the fact that he, Jacob, is a smooth-skinned kind of guy, whereas Esau is a hairy man. So what if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Hello, Jacob. That's a thoughtful point. That is a very good point. While I'm in the middle of this ruse and dressed in Esau's clothing and going through this complex charade, Dad can't see me, that's true, but he can touch me. What if he touches me and he finds out, oh, this is not Esau, this is my younger son trying to trick me? He goes on. So I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And Rebecca responds, let the curse fall on me, just do what I say. Chapter 27, verse 13. I wonder if she knew what she was saying. Probably not. Let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Well, God's curse did fall on her. Jacob had to flee for his life to Paddam her brother's home, 700 miles away. She planned to see Jacob again when he returned, but she died. Her other son married Ishmaelite women, just despite her, just despite Isaac. There are consequences in this life for sin, even when God overrides our stupidity and brings good out of evil. So live your life in such a way as to be pleased and blessed by God, not cursed. At all costs. I think Rebecca was disciplined by God for her sinful plotting against her husband and using Jacob like a pawn on a chessboard. But she was not condemned to hell. She was disciplined. But not condemned. You say, well, what's that? Well, it's the difference between an enemy of God and a disobedient child of God. That's the difference. In love, God disciplines his wayward children. Hebrews 12. In wrath, he destroys his enemies. But even here, even here as an enemy, there is the promise of the good news of the gospel, which comes to us, comes to you, comes to all of us, and says to all who believe, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? Saved from His wrath through Him. Reading on. For if when we were God's enemies, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Romans 5, verse 83 may say that's a promise for me and it's a promise for you and it's a promise for all who will believe and trust in the atoning work of Christ even though now you may be considered his enemy Christ died for his enemies do you not think about that and come to Christ and save oh he would never have anything to do with me if he only knew what I let me tell you he knows everything you've ever thought He understands the Esau heart as much as he understands the Jacob heart. And by the way, we haven't got into this much yet. Jacob, at this point in his life, he's a scoundrel. He's not saved. He doesn't know the Lord. I'm going to bring this out in a future message. He's a rascal just like Esau. But God set his affection upon Jacob. May the Lord show you the fact that there's hope. There's a window open. There's a door of opportunity for you to walk through. It's to confess your sins and to come to Christ believing that his power, the power of his blood, is sufficient to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and set you on solid ground, solid footing in the kingdom of Christ as his child. Now, I'll take some licks from God as his child, and I might complain about it. What are you doing? What's going on? But I at least have this comfort. He doesn't strike me down like an enemy. He loves me. And he loves his people. And Paul says, What father doesn't discipline his children? If he doesn't discipline his children, then guess what? He's not a child. He's a bastard. He doesn't belong to the family. The Lord loves us so much, He's not going to let us be. Not going to let us stay at Jacob either. That's a future lesson. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're thankful and appreciative for your grace. If we have the notion today in our heads that we are too sinful to ever come to know Christ, that we are too sinful that God would never want to have anything to do with us, maybe look today at this text and see that God sets his affection upon whom he will. And he has got the gospel invitation comes to those, let us learn it, it comes to those who are in his mind his enemies. His enemies. Yet still he holds out the clear doctrine of grace and mercy. A king, a conqueror, can be merciful to those he conquers or can give them all the sentence of death. Our God is such that if we will come to him in repentance and faith, he will grant to us the scepter of mercy and grace and will bring us into his family as part of his kingdom. Lord, if there's one here today that's struggling with the whole idea of their sin, and if they're struggling with the whole concept that God just could not love them enough or want them enough to be in their family. May they look at this text this, this day. and May they see that Jacob has the hand of God upon him while he's a rascal,
1: while he is a deceiver, a liar,
0: a wretched man. And he's going to be brought Lord, you're in the business of making princes and princes out of all of us who are enemies. Thank you for your great love. Stir our hearts to believe it. Grant us repentance and faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from.